Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is being recorded live on TalkShoe January 8th, 2010. Happy New Year, all. It's wonderful to be recording Biota Live again this year. I did announce uh, at the end of last year that we were going to be moving to the Saturday format. We'll still record for a couple of Fridays leading up to the Saturday format, and then we'll start exploring what we can do on, on Saturdays, either um, earlier uh, in the AM per the uh, previous recordings where we record around 10 AM Pacific on Saturday, or potentially in the kind of midday or late afternoon format, but whatever works. I did receive some correspondence indicating that the earlier in the morning format was better for folks in Europe. I'm very mindful of that, and I'm very mindful that we have a number of European listeners that would like to participate in Biota Live. I know the former participant, Gerald de Jung, uh, has got some news and updates, and it'd be wonderful to have Gerald on in a, in a reasonable time for him. Um, so certainly in a, in a couple of recordings' time, we will move to the Saturday format and start exploring different times and start exploring having different folks on participating in the Biota discussion. So I wanted to talk a little bit about some uh, discussion that's been going through the Biota Conversations mailing list and also fits into some of the stuff that I've been doing recently. I want to say that it was inspired by uh, the spider and the cathedral. What was it called? The Cathedral and the Spider, uh, obviously playing on the Cathedral and the Bazaar, um, which was a, an open source book written, I guess, in the mid-90s, maybe even the early 90s. And also, um, Spiders Just Say No, the two podcasts that Dick Gordon, Gerald Young, Jeffrey Ventrella and I recorded associated with simulating spiders and then simulating spiders on drugs. Well, there's been some discussion through the Biota Conversations mailing list recently about whether simulating uh, psychoactive substances was something that could be done and was of interest. And this came from Eric Burton, but also Dave Kerr. Um, Dave Kerr's simulation with AI Planet, he inserted, I think, I'm not sure whether they were psychotropic or alcohol-like or um, even uh, analgesic drugs into the simulation environment, and they had a particular effect on the simulated bodies. And I understand that Eric Burton, through crediting, has done something similar. It hasn't really been something that I've considered with Noble 8, but its potential for the, um, particularly the intelligent agents of the simulated environment simulations to offer some kind of, um, I don't know, either slowing or speeding up or some way um, altering the consciousness of the simulated entities. And it's an area that we've not really considered, I guess, in the, in the broader artificial life community. Um, I'm not sure whether the seed actually came from the spider and the bizarre and spiders just say no, uh, but certainly in my own thinking that was a, a point where the community started talking about such things. And speaking on uh, consciousness, I was interviewed in the Sea Realm podcast. And the Sea Realm had had uh, Bruce Damer on uh, probably three previous Sea Realm recordings, but this was my first experience in the Sea Realm podcast with interviewer KMO. And I had a great time, actually. We talked about a lot of stuff associated with the artificial life community. We recorded about an hour and 40 minutes worth of audio, and KMO was only able to use 40 minutes. So he did an amazing editing job, actually, listening to it uh, the first time from the edits. I had an immense sense of fear that he was going to leave in some of the dead ends and miss out some of the more important parts. The only part that I think he really missed out that I wanted to include was some discussion of what artificial life simulators actually did. 
I think there's very little understanding in the kind of broader community, even folks who are moderately sympathetic to the artificial life community, about what this thing, artificial life, is in terms of the day-to-day simulation. Bruce Dana has a, a wonderful rap associated with his wife Galen talking about how there aren't a lot of female artificial life simulators because women understand that uh, life is created one peanut butter sandwich at a time. Well, certainly as a as a, a practicing artificial life developer and someone who feels that they've made a number of peanut butter sandwiches for their simulation over the years, I think there are a number of things which are metaphorically similar to creating peanut butter sandwiches for your simulation. And certainly I wanted to give that out to um, KMO's audience. Unfortunately, that bit of the, the interview was cut. But it is something that I think about quite a bit, that it's... Um, our ability to talk on uh, some of these philosophical issues, even some of these kind of metaphysics issues, is very much grounded in the kind of experience that we've had as simulation uh, authors. I see Dick Gordon in the chat. Uh, he and I and, and Bruce and Peter Newman have been putting in the midnight hours with regards to the Evo grid over the past couple of weeks. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the work that we've been doing with the Evo grid recently. Obviously, this year is really ramping up to be um, the year of books, and that was the topic that I wanted to discuss on as well. But uh, Dick and Bruce and Peter and I have been meeting on probably two or three times over the week, and certainly long, long email chains, uh, which you can actually see most of them on the EvoGrid developer mailing list, just kind of, I don't know, ratcheting down or getting some sense of what this EvoGrid thing is in an applied simulation context. And certainly my own background, my own kind of time in the trenches in terms of developing open source and developing artificial life in particular makes me think that we as a kind of collective group have a body of knowledge that is very useful for for Bruce and for Peter as they explore some of the problems they encounter in the Evo grid, although there's some debate over whether the Evo grid is currently an artificial life simulation. I certainly think the artificial life simulation community has a lot to offer um, in terms of background experiences. And it was interesting talking with Dick in particular, I think it was probably last Saturday evening, uh, that Dick Bruce and I got together um, on, on Skype to have a long conversation about the Evo grid. And Dick made the point that he didn't think the software, the underlying software, was important um, or whether it was it was relatively interchangeable in order for the kind of meta concepts of the Evo grid to continue on. And that really shook me as an artificial life developer. I think um, and probably talking to people like Jeffrey and Gerald and, and Larry Yeager and Dave Kerr and a number of the folks we've had on previously, John Klein, I guess the software is so intimately part of what we do that we really think of it as philosophy and the theories on top of that as really in some way going down and being replicated in the software. So certainly that was a, a thought that I took away through the week that maybe Dick's point was actually right, that potentially we we over-obsess about the software and, and don't see it really as something which is a, a disposable layer to the, the broader ideas that we are carrying over. And that was a theme that I carried through this week um, from the Evo Group related discussion. Bruce is in the period of just like a vast amount of writing, as I think a number of our, a number of are currently. Um, so when he is at uh, a uh, time, it'd be wonderful to have him on the Biota uh, podcast on Biota Live to talk more about the current instantiation in the Evo Grid, and similarly to have to Peter Newman on as well. My most recent interaction wasn't actually with the Evo Grid development. It was listening to some audio uh, that Peter, Bruce, and Dick recorded in Second Life, and I uh, wrote down copious quantities of notes, which I kind of summarised into a series of questions, mainly to Peter, but also to, to Bruce and Dick. 
And yeah, it, it's an interesting project, the Evo Grid, as it kind of gets bolted down now onto actual software. Obviously, Bruce is continuing his visions of the Evo Grid, but uh, I think that's probably the Evo Grid update that Bruce wanted me to provide. So moving on from that, I wanted to talk a little bit about the books that are going to be worked on this year and also the potential for us to self-publish through the... Uh, through the holiday period, I had a look at Lulu.com. My previous experience with regards to online publishing was through Cafe Press. But looking at Lulu, it produces a high-quality product. I was actually quite impressed. And also, it gives the ability to list immediately on Amazon. So you have a, a very real point-of-sales presence in terms of being on Amazon. And also, it's relatively cheap. Um, for example, my original manuals, when... Um, printed on Cafe Press came to about $15 for about 130 pages. And the same, the same book on Lulu comes to about $6, which means we as a community can probably start at least generating text in this kind of, you know, in this kind of environment uh, where, for example, if the academic community, those teaching A-Life, these kind of things were relatively sympathetic, there could be half a dozen books um, from various projects dealing with this specific instance of the projects that could then be presented and sent to academics that were uh, teaching artificial life. I think the ability to, to self-publish currently should not, be, uh, should not be forgotten. And I think certainly Dick um, and others in the community currently are, are planning collections, and this is something that I'm very sympathetic to as well. Uh, but my own experiences with regards to, to publishing seems to indicate that the freedom one has, particularly one, one minimizes the cost of uh, providing review and editorial copies, is just phenomenal. Um, so I think the ability for us as a community to take the experiences that we've had publishing in collections and actually start developing our own works, uh, be they self-published or be they collected and used as means of approach, is really now. The technology is out there. Many of us have the time. Many of us also have the collections of, of text. I mean, going back through my own writing, I literally have CD-ROMs worth of text uh, that are in a state where, with some editing and some proofing, they, they can be published. And my plan over the next year is to actually utilise Lulu as well as working with uh, Dick, Bruce and others who are publishing books in, in collections through Springer and, and similar publishers. But I kind of started this narrative last year in Biota Live, but I really do want to emphasise that we as a community uh, possess the raw skills in order to do this. And I think in parallel to this, the academic community is certainly very hungry for these kind of artificial life primary texts. So we shouldn't consider that we need to go through formal publishing outlets. I think within a community, we could probably create our own kind of uh, proofing groups, our own means of, uh, of putting together uh, texts that, if they aren't useful for broader academics, at least can be utilised as kind of inspirational texts and things for folk who are listening into Biota Live and maybe want the ability to take some of the ideas that they hear in Biota Live and, and flip through them as a book. Now, I'm the first to say I don't want to see podcasts being used for some kind of exploitation, and certainly I don't want podcasts to be used to uh, solely sell books or these kind of things. But I think the format is out there, the means to self-publish out there, and really... From my own thinking, it is akin to a lot of the methodologies that we talk about with regards to, to open source. 
I think also all of us in the community have produced a, a good portion of our stuff open source up until now as well. But um, yeah, maybe there's a formal need for uh, for actual publishing. I don't know. I'm willing to hear all kinds of correspondence on that. So if folks want to join the Biota Conversations mailing list, go to the Biota website, B-I-O-T-A dot org slash podcast and join in. Start the discussion. What are your own thoughts with regards to self-publishing or getting together in collections? Are books a thing of the past? Should we concentrate purely on creating a vibrant online community? Should we use social networks or the ways that we can be exploiting things like podcasts more in terms of getting the message out? I'd like to think that all these things were available to us, but certainly um, in recent weeks I've been exploring Lulu with regards to publishing, and I think the ability, particularly for those of us that are generating a lot of text, I know Dave Kerr, for example, writes a lot, um, both fiction and non-fiction associated with artificial life. These these avenues should be considered. Maybe I'm just talking in terms of personal luxury as well, because I'd really like to enjoy a, a book written by Dave Kerr or Gerald de Jung or Jeffrey Ventrella or Bruce Damer or any of the folks that appear on this podcast on a regular basis. And really, it's just a matter of time, commitment, and um, some degree of... Uh, I don't know, pay you long-term planning in terms of actually pulling these kind of things together. So that's just a seed I wanted to put out into the community. I know we have Dick Gordon in the chat, and uh, obviously Dick's background with regards to publishing is long and esteemed, and he currently is uh, talking about putting together at least two um, artificial life collections in the near future. And I know we're expecting to have Liz Swan on shortly, and Liz also uh, has been talking quite a bit about the... Uh, the ability of the community to uh, to get behind a book or two. So that was really that whole wrap uh, about publishing. Hello, Dick. It's wonderful to have you on this evening. How are you? Okay, fine. Hello, guest three. Yeah. Hello. Is that Liz? Hey, it's Liz. Hi, Tom. How are you? Uh, hi, Liz. We have Dick on the line as well. So, okay. Good. Hey, hi, Dick. Liz. How are you? Okay. Good. So, in terms of topics that we were going to discuss this evening, I've, I've covered a number of the topics that um, you, uh, yeah, that, that you didn't want to talk about specifically. But with regards to the potential of what may happen in Salt Lake City in um, 2011, do you want to talk about that a little bit now, Liz? Well, um, unfortunately, I don't have any updates yet. I contacted the organizers of one of the conferences that Dick had identified, which I think is a good one. He, it's quite a long uh, name of this society. It's the International Society for the History, Philosophy, and Social Studies of Biology, and I think that it would be a really good venue for us to have, uh, for the A-Life community to have a special session there, but um, so far I haven't gotten any word. So they, somebody did write me back and say, why don't you contact um, the local conference arrangers, which I did, and um, so far no reply on that. But I think the long story short is that we're way ahead of schedule, so they're not even looking to put sessions together until, um, I guess, this coming fall, maybe fall of 2010. So, you know, I'll just keep on it and I'll keep the community up to date on what I find. And if that winds up not working out, we'll just seek some other conference venue. 
Certainly. Okay. Yeah, Tom, what we'd like to do is uh, uh, have a book similar to uh, Divine Action and Natural Selection uh, with lots of dialogue. And to do that, we need to organize, uh, basically, we need to organize a set of uh, authors now. Uh, and uh, hopefully, the uh, meeting will work with it so that we can try to get the, at least some of the authors to the, to the meeting and then finish up the book after the meeting. Uh, but that's why we're way ahead of their schedule because we'd yeah. like to have a proceedings that's developed in advance. So in terms of the book, Dick, would you like to give an introduction to what you'd like to see in the book? Uh, well, the basically uh, it's the uh, origin of any any system which goes from something simpler to something more complex, and how does it do it, and, and how can it happen spontaneously or on its own, or in what context can it happen? So it's a, a question, uh, the, the overall title would simply be Origin of Design. So it could be uh, at the origin of life level, or it could be at uh, uh, higher organizational levels, uh, social structures, things like this. But uh, 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 you know, evolution is obviously a big, big component. And in some earlier discussion, I think, with William R. Buckley, and really this is a, a question for Liz specifically, I raised the point that we almost need an origin of origin in terms of the, the philosophy of continuums versus the philosophy of starts. It's not something that I'm, I'm familiar with in the broader philosophical literature. Liz, do you think, do you think everything by necessity needs an origin? And do you think some of the the kind of problems associated with finding the specific origin maybe in our own kind of cognitive concept of what an origin is? Um, that's a good question. I think, you know, in terms of origins of mind, um, I think that there there is or was an origin of mind. So that's kind of how I came to the question of uh, looking at how did we change from living systems that were non-conscious or not minded to uh, systems that are minded and conscious? So, I mean, it's, it's a huge, broad question because it brings in insights from artificial life and artificial intelligence. Uh, you know, we've seen so many projects in artificial intelligence try to mimic or simulate the mind and sort of miss something essential, which drives us back to the fundamental philosophical question of, well, what is it then about the mind, you know, the, the mammalian mind or human mind? Uh, there must be some sort of, you know, special feature and whatever it is, when did it come about? And so that's how I got interested in the connections between the origins of mind and the origins of life, too, because maybe... There are two phase transitions in the history of evolution on Earth that are linked in interesting ways. You know, I just don't know. I have way more questions than I have answers. But, um, yeah, to answer your question, I don't know if, if where does this idea of origins come from? I'm not sure, but I guess it's a, just a philosophical intuition that the mind, you know, cognitive abilities evolved somewhere, and I just want to explore that question philosophically. Yes, I guess I have this problem with physics, that 
the whole notion of the Big Bang in terms of the origin of space and time seems to me to be fundamentally flawed. In fact, I can't really think of a way in which time can stop and start in that regard because I think it's independent of our own perception. Certainly the origin of life, I would also think, was similarly problematic because really it's almost a smear rather than a distinct origin point. But even within the smear, what does origin actually mean in terms of, well, if you stop the process just there, you wouldn't actually get life. So is that the origin point or is it the point where you actually distinguish that life has emerged? So that's the origin point of life. But moving to the origin of design, that is almost like a, a meta problem. I mean, that, is, that isn't like the origin of life. That is actually something to do with the construction. It's almost like a, a meta theory. Is, is that your own thinking, Dick, with regards to talking about the origin of design versus the origin of life? Well, there, there may be some commonalities. I, I just gave you a book, which i like you to announce to people in detail so they can try to get a hold of it. Uh, in this, this book by, uh, let's see, what's his first name? Uh, Robert, Robert Laughlin. Uh, he, he what he emphasizes is that, uh, well, he, he, he almost suggests, but not quite, that reductionism is dead and that everything in the universe is emergent. Now, for him, the universe is physical. Uh, uh, I read the book cover to cover, and to be honest, there's not anything of any uh, deep importance in it uh, in regard to biology in terms of what he says. Uh, but I think it's uh, if he turns out to be right in his view of physics, uh, then uh, he's turning the whole tables on uh, uh, reductionism and, and saying that everything in the universe is emergent. Uh, I don't know what to do with that at this point, and I'm not sure he knows what to do with it. It's a strange book in that regard, but you're not sure where you're left. you sort of left hanging when you finished it. Now, uh, he does have a Nobel Prize in physics, so I suppose he knows his physics well. Uh, and uh, if only for that reason, I think we should take this seriously and have a hard look at it. But the, uh, I guess what I'm saying is that every, what he's suggesting is every structure we deal with in, in the physical universe is already emergent in some way, uh, though I'm not sure what that means in terms of doing science yet. The other problem with the term emergence, and this came through our discussion with the EVO group with Peter Newman, there was a point where Peter Newman was describing Boyd's as an emergent artificial life simulation. And looking historically, I think when Boyd's first came out, people said, yes, it was an emergent artificial life simulation, but by contemporary AI life standards, it can't be classified as an emergent artificial life simulation because the, the structure is, is so predetermined in terms of the fact that you're going to create a flock that our own perception currently with regards to emergence in artificial life simulations means that it isn't an emergent simulation. So I think what you've caught here in, in Laughlin's work is this idea that emergence as a term as it maps on to observations of systems is something that is quite dynamic and uh, um, I don't want to say evolving, but certainly linguistically as it maps on to actual science is changing even now. So my concern, I mean, really what you're describing is the, is the origin of design problem, that basically 
linguistically as we map to these concepts as they change the mathematics, the popular understanding of the mathematics and also the, the kind of bleeding edge points that it's being used in physics and maybe even in simulation, does eventually get back to, get back to lay people that actually use the term. So I guess what struck me with regards to, and you, you proposed at the time, a series of origins books, including Origin of the Universe and Origin of the Mind, and I, I just see the origin of life and the origin of design kind of fitting into these broader possibilities for origin books in the future. But we almost risk the problem of becoming dated very rapidly if we don't either define the terms in a scope which won't change or, I don't know, construct something which is removed from language. Does that make sense? No, because science continually progresses partly by redefining the words. I understand that. <laughs> so, uh, so but I in terms that. of the actual insight, insights are, are it should in 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 reference at least be independent of that in some regard. Or do you think just by writing the book it will date itself? Well, I, I, go ahead, Liz. Oh no, no, go ahead. I want to hear what you have to say. Well, I, I think because of some of these problems, I think it's important to uh, uh, have philosophers involved and uh, watch carefully to see if they make any sense. But uh, uh, I think a lot of what's going on here is, uh, you know, this Laughlin's talking about reinventing physics, I, uh, but I think he's doing more than reinventing physics. He's... he's uh, changing the order of cause and effect in a way. Uh, and it's very hard having been raised in a completely, uh, how should I say, uh, uh, reductionist uh, atmosphere. Uh, this is extremely difficult for me to understand what on earth he's talking about. So this I mean, I... This relates to your own adoption of the term emergence, and your own mapping of the term back on to something well, of meaning. You see, you see I, I naively started with the concept that emergence is something that you can predict from a reductionist point of view. No. No? It's the can opener of a reductionist point of view. <laughs> it's the can opener? <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well, I'm, I mean, the, the way that I describe it, I was thinking about this, actually, because I'm asked occasionally things like the, the recent interview that I did on the C. Moore Floss Weekly to define emergence. And the only, yeah. way I, I, the only way I can describe it now is to do with my own sense of surprise as it relates to these kind of simulations. So I think emergence is so heavily caught up in our own perception and you just illustrated that perfectly. That your oh, yes, perception... I, agree with, I agree with that. And the problem is, you see, is that I think to solve the problem of emergence, we have to solve the problem of the origin of our perception. Certainly. Because that itself is part of the problem. Now, I, that's why, you know, I wrote, a, I wrote a paper a few years ago on uh, origin of perception. And I think that we have to try to understand how a system goes from not perceiving something to perceiving something. Uh, and I think we have to be really going to have to get down to nitty gritty uh, in, in terms of uh, admitting that other things besides us perceive things 
and figuring out how on earth they do it, and then figuring out how on earth that perception evolved. And uh, the evolution of the perception will perhaps then give us a clue to uh, this concept of the emergence of it. Uh, I mean, one way to put it is this. There, there are some people who like to uh, say that each level has its own laws, and these laws uh, are not dependent heavily on one another, uh, on, on, on lower laws. And it's kind of like the universe lives, exists at many different levels that are almost independent. And this is actually the source of my comment that it doesn't make a lot of difference which uh, program uh, Bruce and Peter use uh, for the Evo Grid because uh, the, if, an emerge, if there's an emergent phenomenon that comes out of it, it's going to emerge pretty much from any such any program they use. You also made another interesting point in that discussion, which was, and my mind has gone blank with regards to the specific term, but it related to uh, a kind of weighting of complexity where you actually explore the simulation space it was you, you weight your search oh. based on the complexity. What was that term? No, no, it's not complexity. It's called important sampling. Okay. And uh, I've got a, uh, there's a fellow, Maven Kellos, who's written a book on Monte Carlo methods, which includes uh, uh, discussion. He's done research on importance method, uh, important sampling. What so it means is it, it's, it's a relatively simple concept. Uh, uh, well, you know these poems, uh, the Robert Frost poem about the road not taken? Certainly. Okay, fine. Well, uh, consider the possibility of taking or not taking different roads uh, when you hit a branch point or a fork in the road. Okay? Now, if you can, you're trying, if you're trying to figure out what the whole scene is, not just the particular road you take, then you can try to assign probabilities to each different pathway. Okay? Certainly. So if you choose a pathway which is relatively rare, then important sampling is a way of estimating the overall consequences of emphasizing these rare paths and trying to do it in a fair way so that you still get a reasonable picture of the whole landscape without taking all the possible paths, but you weight them according to the probabilities. Now, that's my understanding. I've never actually done important sampling. Certainly, and I think the statement and, and you made know, at the time was that the reason that artificial life hadn't solved a set of problems for the past 20 years was because it hadn't yet implemented important sampling. And to frame the conversation, I was going to the dentist early the next morning, so I wasn't in full intellectual form. Oh, well, well, look, important sampling is not important. <laughs> okay? it's, a it's a trick to reduce quitting time. But, uh, exactly. And I was thinking on this, and I was thinking, actually, that's what happens with intelligent agents in a simulated environment is because you have a spread of these things, they are really the epicenter of these important samplings. And what you're actually describing was the context of a different kind of simulation, not being able to solve certain elements that had been simulated by intelligent agents or had been solved fundamentally by intelligent agents in the simulated environment. So, for example, in Polyworld, the important sampling relates specifically to the sea monkeys' interactions with the world. 
And the sea monkeys that survive or prosper or continue on genetically are basically the ones that have been important sampled over the space. So really it's a property of the simulation as well. But what interested me from the statement was that we are now generating so many different kinds of simulations moving in different directions that the, the surveying of these simulations and the understanding of how they map back onto language is really the problem that I wanted to discuss this evening with, with Liz specifically, this idea of weak versus strong artificial life and her own thinking on that and perhaps Dick and my own particular musing associated with that. Liz, would you like to offer a, a definition as you see it with regards to weak and strong artificial life? I don't want to offer a definition on that. I actually, that's one question that I remain agnostic on, which Dick Gordon pointed out in the last Biota Live conversation. In my paper on artificial life, I, um, you know, address the question and say some A-lifers believe that their creations are alive, which I take to be the strong A-life position, and some don't take them to be really alive, but, um, you know, respect them for simulating or emulating particular processes that living systems do, and that's good enough for them. So I, as a philosopher, I'm agnostic on that question, and um, it seems like there are a lot of strong intuitions one way or the other that I'm more interested in hearing about than in taking a firm position on right now. Would you like to start, Dick? Well, why don't you call William in? He's online here. He's got some strong opinions on these things, I think. Strong opinions. <laughs> okay, tell me the question again. Okay. Uh, I guess the question is how to distinguish between the strong A-Life program and the weak A-Life program. Um, well, for me, the strong A-Life program pretty well equates to wet artificial life. Uh, I am skeptical that um, what we're doing in computational artificial life, that is software, can reasonably be considered to be alive as compared to biological systems. Mm -hmm. um, the reason for that is largely related to the fact that Computers are essentially deterministic environments, and uh, you know they're discontinuous as well. And living systems as we know them are in a continuous environment that includes both determinism and indeterminism. Um, so I'm not really sure that you know I'm not convinced that uh, software-based artificial life incorporates enough possibility. The mm. possibility space is too small in my view. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Whereas in wet artificial life, the possibility space is the physical universe. And I well, haven't heard any really good arguments, uh, counter arguments to that. I do know that, that Tom Ray tends to argue that uh, the systems he's building are alive. Right. At that point, it becomes a, an issue of definition. So, you know, the distinguishing 
characteristics are not so well understood, we as humans can look at something and, and know whether it's alive or not by its behavior. Can we? So far, all of the systems that we have available that we can view, um, humans, biologists particularly, would say, that's a rock, that's an automaton, that's a living creature. Uh, that rock is actually a lithosphere containing uh, live bacteria. I'm afraid you're wrong. Well, also, no, no, that's a, there's a difference between the rock and any uh, some, anything which you can magnify to view. So the argument you're giving is specious. Not really, because the rock itself is modified by the organisms and vice versa. It's a substrate. And that, find... That's true. It might be a substrate, but that doesn't mean that it's living. It doesn't mean that it has metabolism. It doesn't mean that it reproduces. It doesn't mean that it respires. None of those things. Okay. So now we're exploring what your particular view of living means here. Okay. Let, let, let me take an extreme point of view. I had I had a minor operation under which I where I had to be put in uh, put out in total total anesthesia. Now my memory goes up to the point of feeling the drug coming into my veins, and then after the operation, I was suddenly awake. Okay, and it was a rather startling experience because, you know, I knew. I, I knew objectively what uh, what was supposed to happen to me in between, but uh, you remember the scenes in uh, Star Trek movies where uh, data gets turned off and on, and this is taken as, uh, quote, proof that he's not alive because he can be turned on and off? And uh, I had that uncanny experience that I was data because I could be turned on and off, and I was turned off and then right back on. Not all of the metabolism in your body was turned off. Of course not. Of just, course your, not. just your top-level psyche. Right. No, uh, but that's not just my top-level psyche, I suppose. Uh, but the, the inner experience was very much of, gee, I can be switched on and off. And therefore, perhaps I am an automaton. But is it, that's not really any different than what happens when we go to sleep at night. I mean, essentially, some cognitive functions are put on pause, for lack of a better word, but there's so much. I, I agree. I think only the muscular functions are put on pause. I mean, I think biologically, our cognitive functions through sleep can't be considered to be on pause. It's only the fact that we're... Many of us are, not all of us, are paralyzed through sleep that stops us. But I, I, I want to interject my own view here because I think, particularly because we're all living in the U.S. currently, there are a number of experiences that I have in this country, uh, particularly coming from outside the U.S., which makes me wonder whether or not I'm alive, as, as William <laughs> discusses. And I think this whole perception with regards to strong and weak artificial life presupposes that there is some amazing thing called life that is in fact governed and and worshipped and we all as a community are, are 
you know, are all moving towards this wonderful thing called life, which we aspire to and which we respect. And I feel the same way with regards to intelligence. I have conversations with people that think very highly of this, you know, this thing called the human brain. And then I put on shoes that are made by children. And I hear about the fact that there are between 20 or 40 million people, human beings in this country that are below the poverty line. And I also have the amazing experience of interacting over the telephone with entities that I'm not clear whether they're alive or not. <laughs> and my feeling is that there is so much information in my general experience with regards to the notion that there is nothing implicitly beneficial about being wet artificial life <laughs> that I can't really see this notion between hard and soft mapping onto my own reality and maybe that's where Tom Ray is coming from fundamentally. What interests me with regards to the the strong and weak point is that this is a construction that was created philosophically maybe 20 years ago as a way of philosophers approaching the artificial life community and making something interesting out of it. And as an artificial life practitioner, and one of the great benefits of having Liz on the call last and having Liz on the call now is that I have the ability to actually interact with a philosopher and put the point out that there are amazing and exciting things going on in the artificial life community currently that are sticky and relate actually to deconstructing these old points, but also exploring really new and interesting philosophical points. So I guess we're returning to the previous show in that regard. William, you have these kind of experiences too. I mean, describe again your idea of the the central nature of being biologically alive and how it is important in this context? The essential nature of being biologically alive... Uh, well, let me rephrase this. The difference between being biologically alive and being alive in terms of a computation is... Um, well, any analysis you give is going to be based upon some definition. The definition I would give for a living system, uh, biological living systems, are that you have, and, and this goes back, strangely enough, to my probably science around the 6th to the 8th grade, which was you have reproduction, locomotion, respiration, characteristics like that in current parlance, we would talk about metabolism being a very important component, that you're built of the substrate of which the universe is constructed. That's the link back to artificial life. Um, biologists would in general these days, and a lot of biologists that I've spoken with, um, would in general argue that it doesn't really matter what you're made of, it matters how you're made. But I'm not so convinced that that what you're made of is unimportant because the computational realm is discrete and discontinuous and deterministic, purely deterministic. In fact, the lack of determinism is often a source of error within computational environments. Um, it is the ability to predict the future that allows a programmer to create a program. That's how they work. And biological organisms do not really work that way. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I would argue that there's a certain amount of organization and structure. That's why embryology works the way it does, because otherwise at every <clears throat> the, the discussion we're having in our group is about symmetry breaking. And if there weren't some organization to those symmetry breakings, then creatures within a single species would have a great variety of forms, and yet we don't. We have a general fixed form. And you might be larger, you might be smaller, you might have slightly different creases in your skin, but generally you have uh, eight fingers on two hands and two thumbs on two hands and so on and so forth. And uh, you are constructed out of material that has both deterministic and indeterministic behaviors. And it's continuous, except atoms are not, are not continuous, they're discrete. But the interactions that they engage in tend to have continuous forces involved. So the material out of which potential living systems, be they biological or artificial, are different. And if we're really going to have true artificial life, it will be produced in wetware. That's my view. I have a question about that because that's really helpful to me because um, your description maps onto John Searle, the philosopher of mine, you know, famous 1980s argument about how computers will never be as flexible or as intelligent or as cognitive or many different things as the human mind. And I think that in principle, I agree with him. I think that he's definitely on to something, and many, many, many people disagree with him. But I think that it's really hard to show that he's wrong philosophically. But but the one sticking point that's always bothered me is this, um, although, yes, computer programmers are able to um, apply certain constraints and certain parameters so that, in a sense, whatever happens is, programmed. It is, it's predetermined. But then what about these interesting examples in artificial life programs where interesting behavior emerges? And according to the programmer himself or herself, it is surprising or it's unexpected. What would you say about instances? That like just that? means they didn't understand their program that well. And by the okay. way, I will point out two interesting things about computers. One of them gets back at semiotics. It is interesting that a computer is able to perform all possible computations simply by virtue of its construction. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to argue that um, by putting all of these mechanical or electrical parts together, I, at the same time, account for every possible computation that can be performed. Mm-hmm. There's one other thing about what programmers do. Programmers start with a machine that can perform all possible computations and they pare it down. The act of writing software is one of carving off chunks of the possibility space that you are not interested in. Mm -hmm. You do not design it um, so much as um, partition it. William, that's that's like the old argument about uh, the sculptor working on a stone and turning it into a sculpture. 
yeah. does the sculpture exist inside the stone before uh, the sculpture? Turing says yes. Turing says yes. Can, can, can I argue on all the points that have been raised so far? Um, I'd like to start with the idea of, of, of the embryo and the digits for a start. I have a, a friend in Australia who's a very talented jazz trumpeter who has no thumbs, and I was born with an extra toe on one foot. I think that's the first point I'd like to start with. The second point is with regards to this notion that what programmers do is implicitly related to touching a computer. And I think the examples given could also be done with regards to lawyers, politicians, economists, a wide variety of folk that interact with systems and try to apply constraints. Other so systems it, may be computational, but that doesn't get... No, away they're not, they're, I know. I, here, here we're fundamentally arguing about what it is to be computational. I want to take final issue with regards to that point, because I think what we're doing in software is not, in fact, analogous to stonework. What happens with regards to the way hardware is designed is that it's not that the software channels down what the hardware has done. It is that the software needs to actually find new ways of exploiting and optimizing and, in fact, can increase the power of aspects of the hardware through elements of design and perhaps other things. So the idea that what you do is you start with a Turing machine that you are in fact, reducing down doesn't mesh with the kind of experiences that I've had dealing with hardware engineers in terms of writing software from it. It is not something where we are concatenating in writing software. We are, in fact, lazing in the hardware and producing something which is far more than what is created in the hardware. It's a concept oh, of gestalt, which Turing, doesn't... Turing would 100% argue against that. The fact exactly. of the matter is that, that, you know, the basic Turing theory is that the machine can perform all computable, can compute all computable computations. Certainly. Period. Certainly. And it starts off with that capability regardless of what anyone does after the fact. But... Within contemporary vector processing, even, that paradigm is broken. No, now you're just talking about throughput issues. The paradigm hasn't changed. You haven't added, by parallelization, a computation that couldn't be performed before. In fact, all computations, whether they're P or NP, can be performed. The question is, how long do you have to wait for the answer? NP problems are simply intractable because of their uh, their overall complexity, but it does not mean that they can't be computed. In theory. In theory, they can all be computed. The issue is, how long do you have to wait? Hmm. Hmm. That's the only issue. How long do you have to wait? And the efficiency of coding is all about not having to wait longer than is necessary. But it isn't a property of the hardware, nor is it a property of the constriction of the software. No, it, the property of the hardware is that it can compute all computable computations. End of story. Oh. So you're removing the time characteristic because you say that the time characteristic doesn't actually affect the software? It just takes I didn't say that. I that? said it doesn't affect the machine. The Turing machine can compute all computable computations. 
it's now just, you're, it's now you're going just to a take, of time. Now you're going to take the notion of a Turing machine and implement it into physical example. And when you do, you impose additional limitations such as on the von Neumann serial processor, it can only perform one addition or one subtraction or one multiplication or one division or one test at a clock tick. And parallelization is all about being able to perform more of those operations per clock tick. Certainly from my own experience, the notion that you can move things to an infinite possibility in time eliminates it from practical notions of computation. So whilst I agree that if you want to extend the time infinitely and then require another set of things that require an infinite wait until the computation occurs and then acquire another set that requires an infinite wait until the com computation occurs. Now we can use a simple example, Trey TSP. The traveling salesman's problem can be solved for small numbers of cities. The more cities you add, the longer it takes to come up with an answer. We're not arguing that you can construct a problem which will be difficult on contemporary processing. The issue is with regards to the interaction that hardware and software has. And the point that I was making was that you can construct hardware which without the right software, you will get the chiseling effect that you're describing. But with the right software, you get performance improvements which could not just exist with the raw hardware. There are things in a practical sense that in contemporary computing that break the Turing metaphor. But moving away from that, I mean, if we, if we want to return or take this offline, it's not really, it is potentially a biota-related discussion, but I wanted to really concentrate more on weak and strong with regards to A-Life. Well, well, that's fine. The arguments are fine about whether you're, you know, what your topic is, but you made a specific critical error in describing a computational system. Well, no, the difference is that I'm talking about the difference is that I'm talking about real-world examples where the time cycling has meaning in the computation, and you're saying that in certain circumstances it's feasible to wait a near infinitely long time in order to have the feedback loop in order to comply with your definition associated with Turing computation. I mean, that's the issue. So there's been a prediction that we're going to hit a limit on... Uh, uh, the uh, so-called Moore's Law about speed of computers, uh, at least in terms of single processors. Uh, you can probably surpass Moore's Law by going parallel, but uh, the, the assumption there is that we're going to continue to build deterministic computers, uh, and once we hit a quantum limit where they're no longer deterministic, we've got to do something different. We either go parallel or this notion of quantum computing succeeds or does not succeed or something like that. But let me, let me suggest there's a third way, and that is to keep making computers smaller uh, and let them hit the point where they are no longer deterministic uh, and just keep going right into that realm. Uh, it, it would kind of, uh, uh, how shall I say, uh, 
computing would then become a very different kind of programming would become a different kind of thing because you're always dealing with a substrate which is a computer that's not going to do the same thing twice when you run your program so you get rid of the determinism of your computers and uh, the question is can you have a useful computer language that's dealing with a computer that's not reliable uh, also, is it a human programmable language? I mean, that's what it fundamentally resolves on, uh, whether it's something else. Well, let me let me put it in a simple fa- simple uh, word. I, I I came up with this notion a long time ago, and I called it fault tolerant algorithms, building on the concept of fault tolerant computers. Uh, fault tolerant computers come up with a, try to come up with a deterministic result despite uh, components being unreliable. Uh, and fault-tolerant algorithm tries to come up with a reliable result despite the whole computer being unreliable. Now, what I'm suggesting is if we went for that kind of computer, we'd start entering the realm at which William is complaining, uh, is complaining, uh, is, uh, is, is uh, suggesting that uh, living organisms are working on because they're always working on the substrate of unreliable components. Unpredictable components. Unpredictable. Not necessarily unreliable, but unpredictable. Unpredictable. So how do you do computing with unpredictable components in your computer? And I think if we can solve that problem, then the, the, we will start blurring your distinction between uh, what a computer can do and what a living organism can do. Is power reliable? Parallelizable? Is, is power, as in the energy that you put into a computer... Reliable. It can be removed at any time. That's exactly my point. And contemporary computing systems, and I've dealt with fault tolerant systems that are based on this very principle, have to be able to deal with the potential of power being removed at any given time. And they do so with programs which are deterministic. Oh yes, yes. But uh, that's I, I'm an thinking... interesting argument. Let me let me. It's not an interesting talk... argument. It's a fact. Mm, mm. Well, determinism here, distributed determinism, does have properties that Dick is actually talking about. It doesn't it, William? Can we agree on that? Um, I'm not sure that the properties are there. I'd have to think about that a little bit. I'm going to listen to this particular uh, uh, Biota Live very carefully to make sure that I've got all of my arguments correct. But ultimately, ultimately, you ask... Can power, is power reliable? And no, power is not. How do you account for it? You account for it by writing code which deterministically addresses those issues. A classic issue is um, atomic uh, change to a database. You like to have atomic change to databases so that you can avoid problems of conflict between two or more changes to the same item in the database. The way you handle those problems is atomic manipulation. It's a what, what is, can you define that? William, I, I'm not familiar with the term. Um, the notion is, let's say that, um, well, a classic place where it's used is in airline scheduling. You can't have two passengers in one seat. But it's always possible for two different people at the counter, at different counters, to try to reserve the same seat. Right. How do you okay, account so, for that? Okay, so what happens? 
um, well, the software is built in such a way that um, it probably will involve something like Lamport's algorithm for timing and so forth so that you can determine who was first. What happens if they're both exactly the same time? You flip a coin. You flip you, a coin. But he's, you sample he's some, you sample some pseudo-random generator, and based on the result, you choose. But here's the point. Here's the point that you're missing, William. It is not the case that you have two people entering the same data on the same machine. What, you're, what you're implicitly saying is that this involves a network that has communication where the machines may not be touching. They may be communicating through a network. That's and touching these, in my view. they got a wire between them. Well, yes, but they have a wire between them, between machines which could be unplugged. The wire could be hit by bulldozers. If the, if or, the, if the wire's unplugged, then the message won't get through and there won't be a conflict. Okay, but, but... Between, it's not like that there's just a single wire going from one terminal into the big mainframe and another single wire going from another terminal into the same mainframe. So there's a billion wires. What's the point? The point is, and this is very interesting, that we start moving towards the description that Dick gave originally in terms of the fact that we're not just dealing with pure determinism when you have network factors involved. No, no, no. The software is purely deterministic. All of those other things that occur external to the software are things that the software is designed to handle. Have just you ever written these just kind of applications? I'm going to give you, no, I'm going to give you a very specific example. Okay. Just because we use pseudo-random number generators doesn't mean we might use some alternative source. And and Dick has complained to me in email about this suggestion that I made, but I'm going to make it here just as well. He might have a better example. But you could just as well, for your random number uh, generator on a computer, have some sample of white noise. Certainly. I've, okay. I've got no problem with that. We're talking about an airline transaction. It doesn't over... matter. No, it doesn't matter what the source of the measurement is. Once it's in the frame of the computer, once it has been sampled, digitized, and presented for use, all other computation is deterministic. It doesn't matter what occurs external to the machine. The machine itself is deterministic. And we go through great lengths, great efforts, to ensure determinism within our processors. That's why we use error-correcting codes to eliminate all sources of indeterministic behavior. Have you ever written and software in high-noise high environments? I've written pro software in many noise environments, tri-solid fuel rocket motors or liquid fuel rocket motors that go out into space. Okay. There are lots of environments where you have noise. That does not mean that the software is non-deterministic. Hmm. You are conflating concepts. Hmm. Programmers write programs and are able to determine what they do. Notice the word determine. Yes. Because of an expectation of deterministic behavior, period. Of the, of the computer. Of the computer within but, that computational environment. Using, yes. When, yes, yes, okay. I, 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 will, I will say that your isolated example for a particular group of programmers is the case with regards to determinism. However, I've certainly encountered 
a number of problems that particularly relate to network traffic. And, and the, the rocket example isn't a good example because you're basically dealing with a communication which is being interacted with and having noise. In, in like It's a one-to-one -one communication correspondence with the noise being A to over that component. This isn't a circumstance where you have a distributed set. For example, I mean, when I was 17, I worked in a physics environment. I'm going to squash this quick. You show me some software that behaves indeterministically. Uh, well, there's error Present me with some code. I'd like to see it. And I'll bet you every other programmer in the world would like to see it. I think there are plenty of programmers that have to through error correction, not employed... They have error correction, which is ensuring that things stay deterministic. That's the whole point. Hmm. Well, I'd like to put this out to the broader bias live community because I think William and I have a, have a, a distinctly different set of opinions with regards to the way to solve <laughs> these problems. And it could, it could, well, it could matter I, I, just I, to our language. I agree with William. <laughs> And I, uh, I'll just chime in here that uh, never, never having programmed a single thing in my life, but just listening to the discussion here, I don't see why it's a problem to say what happens inside the computer, just the computer software itself, is completely deterministic. But what happens outside the confines of the software, outside in the real world, can disturb that deterministic. It can, it can provide problems to address. Yeah. But, yeah, but as, I, soon, as, soon yeah. As, it, as soon as the deterministic, the internal deterministic behavior of software is toppled, it stops functioning. Uh -huh. it's, it no longer do you have a program. Programs are all about being able to generate a result based on measurements, expectations, things like that. Yeah. That's but you're allowing for point fault of tolerance in your definition, aren't you, William? You're allowing for fault tolerance in your definition. Sure, and the way you handle fault tolerance is you make a measurement and you test it, and based upon the res response, you make a choice. Anytime you make a choice, you have determinism. The whole point of determinism is choosing Yeah, so I don't understand, I guess, um, what, the what the argument is, essentially, because can't, isn't it a, a point of agreement that if this software can be completely deterministic, but extraneous or external factors can uh, challenge that determinism? Of the Not challenge the determinism, but provide alternative issues that must be addressed. What mm -hmm. a programmer does is predict the future. And the way they do this is they write code to handle every possible contingency. Mm -hmm. That's William, what it is, is contingencies. William, I'd like to get back to your notion of uh, suggesting that uh, uh, wetware is a different situation. Uh, what you're saying is basically that a computer program is written on the faith that the computer it runs on is going to act in a deterministic fashion. And the way we get, get the computer to do this is by making sure that it exists basically in a Newtonian physics environment. And that you get, if you look at Laughlin's book, 
And that's, he talks about computers, and basically that's what he's saying. By keeping well above the quantum uh, world level, we can yeah. ensure that our computers behave in a deterministic fashion. Yes. Now, the distinction you're making with wetware is because wetware works in the real world, it can't, doesn't have that luxury. It's always affected by these quantum-level events. I'll agree with that, yes. But why can't okay. the wetware be deterministic by... Well, I'm sure wetware, by William's definition, in terms of the interaction, is deterministic. Because no, 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 no. Here's the difference. You okay. have to have a control, a mechanism to recover. And if there are some... Remember, a programmer predicts the future. They account for things by... They account for every possible contingency. And in fact, failure to account for a contingency is known as a bug. No. No. There are... There are well, it's also known as a feature. Well, sometimes you don't like to fix bugs, and therefore you put it in the description as being a feature. But... In, in, a, in a very simple way of looking things, if you don't account for the contingency, it's a bug. The so let me understand this here. Let me understand this here. When, when a cell fails, it's a failure, and when software fails, it's a bug. Or does the cell never fail in the same way that the software you fails? You know what? Any person who uses software, who doesn't write it, who's just a user, and when the software fails, the first thing you're going to tell you is, it's broken software. It's a bug. Okay. When, and when the cell fails, when the cell fails, it's doing something different than the software. No, no, not at all. When a cell fails, uh, well, let's take an organism. Don't think about a cell. We're not allowed to think about an organism in William's construct because an organism has communication channels which are not deterministic. Well, some cells do and some don't. The thing is, uh, a cell, the concept of a cell is very different depending on whether you're talking about a, uh, an independently existing cell, one cell organism or a cell in a, in a body. They're not the same at all. Certainly. Uh, so, so As I argue that a computer independently and a computer in a vast network are different things. If you well, want to call it a bug, I'll agree that it's a bug. But the fact no, of the matter is that it occurs in a different environment. A program, a program, at least in Williams' concept, is something that has boundaries, and so does an organism have boundaries. An organism may nevertheless exist in an ecology, and of course interact with that ecology. But let's take, suppose an organism does not have a quote, program in it that uh, to account for some particular contingency. Well, then what happens is it dies. Typically, it dies or gets killed or get eat, gets eaten or something like that. So it, it's failed. It fails. Now, the the what evolution does basically is uh, those that fail before they reproduce don't reproduce. Those who fail after they reproduce, well, okay, they failed, but the next generation has got another crack at it. So that's kind of the distinction, but but uh, shall we say that an organism, what what organisms do is they indeed have bugs uh, or features which lead to failure, uh, but then they get out of it by having reproduced be- before this failure occurs. 
Well, the problem is that you could end up with the same kind of behavior with machines. Oh, yes, you could, couldn't you? Self, self-replicating <laughs> machines could get out of that, that same problem. And how about yes. genetic algorithms? I mean, genetic algorithms in software, as they solve problems, are they deterministic by your definition, William? Ask that question one more time. Genetic algorithms as they exist in software. Yes, they're deterministic. Genetic programming. Genetic programming is deterministic. Everything that they do is is, um, programmed. It is predetermined. It is um, according to a set of rules. But the same definition also exists with regards to the particular kind of cells that Dick is focused on. So your metaphor is broken down. What we were discussing was the difference between a deterministic environment and an indeterministic environment. By your specific definition of that term. Well, I don't yes, think that I my think... specific definition is particularly different from the average physicist. Well, well, except the average physicist isn't dealing with, well, in theory they're dealing with computational systems in some regard, but they're not dealing with the same kind of finite computational systems that you describe within a computer. Yeah, and that's one of the problems with, with computers is that they are finite. Or the problem even, with physics. Even a Turing machine has certain finite characteristics to it. Or the problem yeah, with physics is that it's infinite. An organism is finite too. Yeah, exactly. So what's the distinction between an organism and a computer program? William? William, come on. You brought up the wetware. I'm thinking. You're thinking. (laughs) I might have to think for quite some time, and we're actually beyond (laughs) time for the the discussion, so it gives me me something to consider. Where we began this, where we began this was um, how you handle contingencies, and software, by its design, by its purpose, should handle all contingencies. Not all contingencies. Wait a second. Wait a second. Because because it is discrete and discontinuous the opportunity for handling every possible contingency is much greater than it would be in a continuous, um, non-deterministic environment. Is it possible? Is it possible that it can handle all contingencies? That what can't handle? Software. Is it possible that software can handle contingencies? All contingencies, because that was part of your definition. Uh, somehow your words are are becoming uh, lost in the. Say that again. In Is it possible that software can handle all contingencies? Within a well within a well defined problem, yes. Ah, yeah, that's the circular definition. <laughs> I would have to agree. The problem is that it's a circular definition for the machine itself. A, a Turing machine can compute all computable computations. That's a very circular argument. Okay. Yet it is the definition. Okay. Now, it's your definition. No, no, no. What it's happened? a widely accepted definition. Okay. Okay. So look, let's let's start making the Turing machine components smaller and smaller, so they become unreliable in the quantum sense. 
Okay? What happens to the performance of that Turing machine? Silence. Perhaps you can... <laughs> Perhaps you can no longer construct a Turing machine in such an environment. Well, uh, well, you may have to change the definition of compu of, uh, of a computation while you're at this. But on the way down to the quantum level, uh, you know, it's going to hiccup uh, as we start approaching it. Well, see, the problem with the quantum level is the. the you know, I've I've read a lot of material, little bits and pieces here and there, and uh, the suggestion is that somehow you can put into this quantum state every possible piece of information. Oh no 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 no! Roll the dice, and the answer pops out magically. No, you're missing you're missing something. No, I'm not talking about what people are calling quantum computers. That's that's an attempt to take advantage of. Uh, of uh, the superposition principle in quantum mechanics. Yes. Okay? I, I'm not talking about that. In fact, uh, Laughlin discusses it in his book, and he thinks it's a, a notion which is which is physically impossible. Now, I, I don't... Oh, he thinks it's specious. Yes, he thinks it's... He thinks quantum... The whole thing on co quantum computers is a bunch of money going after a, uh, an illusion. Well, actually, it sounds like someone with some common sense. Okay. Okay. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about simply miniaturizing our uh, Intel chips, making them smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where the, they're no longer deterministic. Well, then at that point you can't program them. No, 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 no. I, why not? What because I'm saying they're no at longer that deterministic. Point, Ah, I'm they won't saying carry on a deterministic process. That's right. So what I'm suggesting is that we what at that point they become similar to living organisms. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. I think they become similar to a living organism considerably closer to contemporary computing. But the question then is, you see, we to to assume that a living organism executes a computer program as we currently conceive computer programs, maybe the distinction between life and automata. Maybe there's a different kind of programming that works when your computer isn't reliable. Um, to, von it, Neumann I, addressed that issue quite handily. Okay, let me so How do you build reliable systems with unreliable components? Right. And that's a, a major uh, part of his his dissertation on uh, self-replicating automata. But and it didn't show up in the von Neumann computer because the von Neumann computer is based on programming with reliable components. No, it's so not based upon programming with reliable components. It's, uh, it's you overwhelmingly... Um, account for all of the unreliability in order to build a reliable system, but the components are not expected to be reliable. No, they are in not. In the von Neumann machine, the design of a von Neumann computer, which we all run? You're referring to the processor in your in your Mac? That's right. It's, it's based on von Neumann's ideas, right? 
It is based on some of his ideas, and the the interesting thing is that um, the components are reliable over an expected period of time, but they're always um, identified with a, I believe it is, mean time between failures. Oh, of course, of course, and that's why... They're not reliable. Well, I know. Safari crashed on me while I was trying to listen to There's, you guys that's earlier. That's the end of your argument. They're not built on... The computers are not built upon a notion of reliable components. I'm well, really concerned here that if we rewind 30 minutes in this recording, we've gone full circle with you, William. <laughs> you might have. <laughs> I think we have converted you and have you arguing from my point now. <laughs> Maybe I didn't understand your point clearly. You need to be more clear about what it is. Well, speaking, of this, speaking of this, Dick mentioned that he was time-constrained. I'm also time-constrained this evening, unfortunately. <laughs> so I, I think we've, we've gone full circle. Liz, I'm not sure if you still want to interact with us. We sound nuts even to me. Um, <laughs> but I'd like to thank you for participating this evening, and, and I, I hope you will um, entertain us for another Biota Live at some stage. <laughs> I certainly will. This is it, It's good practice for my philosophical skills to try to uh, tease out all the various arguments here and who's arguing which position and, and how that works. <laughs> yeah, I'm confused on that too. So I'm, I think we're all going to have to re-listen to this podcast. And apologies to those that are listening to it currently that uh, I've had to draw various diagrams as I have and uh, connecting lines. I am going to suggest to you, uh, Tom, that if you really want to demonstrate to me that we've gone full circle, you'll have to give a clear logical argument as to why that is. I'd like you to do the same, because I think <laughs> in listening to the argument... I'm not the claims that we went full circle. Well, I think if you listen to it, you might find that we did. Why don't we, why don't we entertain this on a future bias live? Maybe even in correspondence. As soon as I see some correspondence, yes. Very good. <laughs> Dick, okay. it's been a pleasure as always. Um, and William, it's always fun. All right. For folks listening in, this has been an extraordinary Biota Live recorded on a Friday evening. Um, we will probably do one more Friday evening format and then move to the Saturday format at different times. William has hung up. Uh, I'd like to say okay. good night and good evening to, uh, to Dick. And Liz, thank you very much okay. for participating. And thank our mysterious guest for this wonderful uh, reference to uh, this company that makes random number generators that exploit quantum physics. Certainly. Or similarly, you can just connect two, two, uh, two wires to a tap and let them drip uh, <laughs> and similarly get beautiful random number generators. In fact, there are a wide variety of ways of getting random number generators, but um, what is it? ID Quantique or Quantique? I-D-Q-U-A-N-T-I-Q-U-E dot com. And thanks to, uh, to Eric Burton or whoever guest four is for putting that into the chat. Good night, all. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.